Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 50 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beard and strange ideas and really making Denny go, why? Why, indeed. And I'm known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Okay, and on today's episode, in addition to your lovely beer news and a couple questions that you all have sent us, uh, well, we're going to sit down and talk some more homebrew with two people that you've heard on the show before. One, David James, actually got us some beer, so now we're going to sit down and actually taste that Czech Amber Lager that he, well, he's won a lot of medals for. Yeah, no kidding. Before... Well, Denny gets to taste beer. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, Steve Poor sent me some uh, beer brewed by a local uh, craft brewery where he lives, and a couple of his home brews. They were amazing, and I'm trying not to make Drew jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before any of that stuff happens, please listen to this message from the people who make the show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey, we're back, and it's time for some announcements. That's right, and if you haven't paid attention to your podcast feed, go back and look. Last week's episode of The Brew File is all about how I try and rapidly prepare for a festival because I'm a dummy who doesn't plan ahead. <laughs> and don't forget that the AHA Homebrew Con is coming up in San Diego, June 22nd through 24th. Great time, lots of fun, lots of beer, lots of educational seminars, and we're giving one too. We're going to be talking about modern hop techniques in West Coast IPA. Um, so if you have any questions that you would like us to cover, if you have any suggestions about what should be in it, or if you have any idea about what beer uh, exemplifies modern West Coast IPA to you, let us know. There you go. And don't forget, we may even have beer this time, so that's extra reason to come attend our talk. We may, we may not. And for those of you who are looking around on the website, uh, I know last time we were talking, I had warned you all that the domain emails might be a little funky. I'm fairly certain I've gotten them fixed. So once again, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, denny at experimentalbrew.com, or drew at experimentalbrew.com, and actually get to us. Yay. <laughs> yeah, really, we weren't like consciously ignoring you. It just kind of worked out that way. Yeah. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website, 
and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Best Friends, and their objective is to save them all. They want to uh, convert all animal shelters in the United States to no-kill by 2025. And in the meantime, they're helping out by taking animals that are in shelters where they may be euthanized, getting them adopted or fostered or moved to other shelters. A really great group of people. They've been around since 1984 doing this, and they've got a track record, and they're doing great work for our pet buddies so uh, please go to experimentalbrew.com click on the patreon link toss us a few bucks and we'll pass it along to them gotta save the dogs and cats yeah 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 all right and now of course it's time for your favorite segment of the week which is your feedback all right and we have one piece of feedback eric pierce good old eric wrote in about the whole cold ipa thing that we were talking about it might be fun to see what Jack Handler of Jack's Abbey thinks, but what was described in the podcast sounds an awful lot like IPL. We've been fortunate over here to enjoy Hoppiness Union for over a decade. And what Eric has mentioned there, Hoppiness Union, is part of that whole series of sort of super hoppy loggers that Jack's Abbey does. And if you go back and listen to Brewfiles, uh, you'll see me talking to Jack about why he actually likes making lagers for his uh, hoppy beers. And Hoppinus Union is one of them. And, of course, the whole lager brow series or hop brow series. Uh, as a perfect example of something somewhat related, but maybe possibly slightly different than cold IPA, which, of course, Denny, you now have a new name for. Yeah, I call it a duck. Because if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and tastes like a duck, it's a duck. And... Uh, I haven't had a cold IPA yet that doesn't taste like a West Coast IPA. So if it if it drinks like a West Coast IPA, it's a West Coast IPA. Now, of course, this just means I'm going to have to make a cold IPA that I'm going to call Cold Duck, just for you. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, you have to be as old as we are to remember that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't think I've ever actually tasted Cold Duck. Oh, really? Oh, man. Uh, when I was in college, uh, back in the days when uh, we were riding on rocks with chisels, uh, cold duck was the thing. <laughs> well, there you go. There's our one piece of feedback for this week. Of course, you can always get us feedback. As I said, the domain emails are now working. So podcast at experimentalbrew.com, drew at experimentalbrew.com, or denny at experimentalbrew.com. Because after all, we like your Feedback! He got to do that twice. It's my favorite part of the day. We're going to head on over to the pub, do the beer news. We'll be right back. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a bag of hops. It's nurturing a healthy planet. Yakima Chief Hops has a deep respect for the land that provides a bountiful harvest each year, and they take pride in being advocates of a sustainable, healthy planet. With every hop purchase, you help to support environmental stewardship efforts, such as 134,500 square feet of solar panels, a CO2 recovery system reducing greenhouse gas emissions by more than 50%, and impactful nonprofit partnerships. Sustainability is a journey, not a destination. There is still more work to be done. Follow the journey of Yakima Chief Hops in their annual Corporate Social Responsibility Report at yakimachief.com slash CSR. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Choose your own brew venture. Join for one year and receive a complimentary brewing book to match your beer journey. Select from more than 60 books, including our favorite, Simple Homebrewing, Great Beer, Less Work, More Fun, written by Denny and Drew. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and treat your shelf to a new brewing book. Get offer details at homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. everybody. Welcome to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere somewhere in cyberspace. We are drinking a couple beers that you probably won't be able to get your hands on today. Why don't you tell them about yours, Drew? Well, I mean, mine, at least if you're in Southern California, is relatively available. Um, eh. <laughs> yeah, but if you're living in Sweden, that's not going to do you any good. M- mine is available in Western Oregon, too, but you and I can't get either of the other ones. This is true. So uh, mine is uh, Pizza Ports Swami IPA, inspired in part because of all the stuff going on right now with Lost Abbey. If you missed the news, uh, I can't remember if we talked about this or not, uh, but Lost Abbey decided that they were completely getting out of their brewery, turning it over to the, the port half of the company, and are now looking, I believe, effectively to do contract brewing in order to kind of keep the brand alive. But Pizza Port is the side that continues to grow. Pizza Port... Swami IPA has been a long-standing core beer of that brand, you know, all the way back to the brew pubs, and it's just a classic West Coast IPA, big, bright, bitter, citrus, dank, you know, all the good stuff that you want in an IPA, seven point something percent. And what I part of the reason why I went and picked this up was because it's now actually available in stovepipes. So in stovepipe, what's a stovepipe? A stovepipe can. I believe that's the right term for a 19.2 ounce can. So it's not <laughs> it's not the tall boy pint. It's a it's a stovepipe with its whole 3.2 extra ounces. Um, I thought this was really interesting because I hadn't seen it before. It had just popped into the market, uh, at least in my eyes, in in these stovepipes, and. It's kind of interesting because this is one of the segments of craft beer that is actually really growing right now. These tall boy cans like this, or not the tall boys, but the taller than the tall boys. Um, like, for instance, we just had a, the news came by not too long ago that New Belgium decided to, you know, do some expansion. Uh, they bought a, I think it was a brewery from Constellation Brands at, and largely fueled by stovepipes of Ranger IPA, you know, the, the, the Voodoo Ranger series. Out of convenience stores, because that's like actually been a huge growth market for them. Is dudes running into Seven Eleven and grabbing a, a 19.2 ounce cans of Voodoo Ranger. Uh, so it's an interesting growth segment in the craft beer world, and I wanted to see how Swami's did in a 19.2. Turns out, 19.2 ounces of Swami's IPA is about a third more than I uh, than I want immediately, 
and less than what I wanted over the course of the evening. You know what, man? Uh, you need like one of those can lids like I was talking about. Yeah, see, you, you sent those to me before, and they, they're really, really cool, but I have that problem of going, what's leftover beer? <laughs> yeah, well, see, it's easy for me. I mean, you know, drink what you want, cap it up, drink the rest of it a couple hours later. There you go. So Swami's IPA from Pizza Port, uh, definitely a classic here, but now in a new package format, and I wanted to try it out. Still a fantastic beer. That's great. I'm uh, drinking a beer from Cold Fire, a local brewery here in Eugene, who just uh, really cleaned up at the Oregon Beer Awards and is getting finally the recognition that they deserve. This is an IPA that they call Thursday Friday IPA because they say for our brewers here at Cold Fire, Thursday is the new Friday. <laughs> Good idea, huh? <laughs> It's a, it is a crisp, bitter West Coast IPA. You get notes of berry, you get pine, uh, definitely some citrus there, just like the good old fashioned IPAs. And then at the very end, kind of like on the back of your palate, there's a little bit of papaya there, which just blends really nicely with all the other flavors. Uh, great beer, 6.7 ABV. And, uh, you know, like I said, most of you won't be able to get this, but if you have a chance to get this or any other beer by cold fire do it uh these guys couldn't make a bad beer if they tried i'm gonna say cold fire has been one of those ones that you've been praising for years and years yeah cold cold fire man i mean you gotta come up here sometime Uh, well hey i just need time off (laughs) and then it's all (laughs) the beers time off all right yeah really well moving on there you go a pair of ipas to start your day uh what a better way to go now, from a really good way to go to a note of concern and you know hope out there, uh, we just both found out that our good friend Clay, uh, Clay Disney from uh, Jaded, and Jaded's been one of our sponsors since, God, I don't know how long now, forever. Yeah, for, for a long time. We're both big fans of their products and everything else, but we just found out that Clay is in a medically induced coma. So uh, whatever, uh, whatever creed faith gods goddesses or whatever magic powers you have in there uh please bring them to bear uh, in hopes that clay recovers from uh, his pneumonia yeah um not only does he make some great brewing equipment but he is just an outstanding person uh which is you know the real reason that we're all pulling for him a lot of people make brewing equipment but uh, not everybody is the kind of guy Clay is. So uh, please, please, please direct your thoughts towards him. Clay's a good dude. Yep. All right. And from, you know, what's arguably terrible news to news that is like, oh, come on. Uh, remember, uh, what was it, a couple episodes back now that we talked about the mac and cheese double IPA? Yeah. And the, the, the stupid. <laughs> I try, I'm trying to forget. Yeah, but the, the, the stupid sudden reaction that I had to, like, well, here's how you would go and make it. Uh, well, it turns out I'd already been beaten to the punch, because of course I had been, and people posted this to my Facebook feed. Uh, Drecker, which is a brewery up in Fargo, North Dakota, they put out a, I guess this is the second year running now, as like an April Fool's type period, and they swear it's not a joke, and I've seen reviews for this on Untapped, which is terrifying. Um, the Mac Roni, which is a mac and cheese sour Infused with hot dogs. <laughs> Come on. And it uses actual mac and cheese and actual hot dogs in it. So not hot dog essence, but actual hot dogs. Um, 
when I was sitting there talking about how to make a mac and cheese double IPA, my thought process was, this is supposed to be a joke, people. Uh, this is still supposed to be a joke. I, 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 I can't. I, like, I, I, know, yeah. I know in the, I know in the opener, I, I told you that I'm the, the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas, but even this is about a bridge too far for me. Or maybe a hot dog bun too far for me. How's that? <laughs> Denny, oh, I have man. to ask. If somebody put a glass of this down in front of you for free, I, I already know if somebody said, hey, you're going to pay for this, you'd say no. If somebody put this down in front of you for free, would you drink it? I would take a sip to see what it tasted like, and that's all I can commit to. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, the take a bite and see if you like it approach to life, which is exactly what my parents did with me when I was a kid and refused to eat Brussels sprouts. <laughs> yeah, but they're good. Well, now they are. They genetically modified the damn thing. Well, they not genetically modified. They they bred them so they were less bitter, which is the reason why some yeah. of Brussels sprouts are now everybody's favorite vegetable, including me. All right. Well, that's because we discovered roasting them, which is the best way to do yeah, it. Roasting with bacon and balsamic vinegar. What's better? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and this has been your cooking show. Um uh, all right, other piece of news. You may have seen this uh, pass by on the feeds, but I wanted to clarify it because a lot of people were kind of, oh, my God, Guinness, which we know they opened up a big brewery in Maryland a couple of years back. I think it's five years back now, which seems improbable. Uh, and who we've been talking about is going to open up a Chicago location with a little tin barrel system and a pub and all that sort of fun stuff. They were just in the news because they announced they were shutting down the Maryland brewery. And I got a lot of people going, what? You know, all this is going away. The important thing, if you dig into it, is they're not shutting down everything. What they're shutting down is the production brewery, which they had started off to make Guinness Blonde uh, for the U.S. market. And I'll tell you what, I don't think I ever saw Guinness Blonde anywhere. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't recall seeing it either. Yep. But they decided that they're shutting down the production of Guinness Blonde, and since they're shutting down Guinness Blonde, and they're never going to make, at least according to them, they're never going to make Guinness Stout here in the U.S., uh, they they decided to shut down the production facility. The rest of the Maryland, I think you, Denny, referred to it as a beer theme park. Uh, yeah, that, well, I've seen that they're referred to as that. Yeah. Uh, which means their little pub and the also the 10-barrel the brew house they have. That's apparently still functioning. So that will still be going on, but you know, about, I think, 200 people or 100 people lost their jobs in the production side. Uh, so if you hear that story about Guinness shutting down in Maryland, that's actually what they really mean is they're shutting down the production brewery. Right, yeah. So you'll still be able to go there and have experimental beers. It's just not going to be Guinness Blonde anymore. Not that I ever had it. Of course, I may also be... I was going to say, yeah. Who's going to notice it's gone? I don't know, but you know, there are some days when I feel like I'm still the only person who remembers Guinness Gold from the 90s. <laughs> yeah, you may be. <laughs> a sweeter, more robust-bodied harp, in a way. Um, but yeah, there you go. The last part, and this is kind of interesting. So Bart Watson, who is what, the chief economist at the Brewers Association, he's, he's the, yeah, something like he's that. the numbers guy. So for years he had a very easy job because he could sit there and extol about craft beer's growth and like, look at all these great numbers everybody's picking up and it's just, you know, barrels upon barrels upon barrels growth uh, every year. Last couple of years haven't been as much fun for Bart. Uh, they've been a lot more trying to dig into numbers and trying to help actually drive people to, you know, what needs to, to happen in order to kind of keep things going. 
And so there's an article on Vine Pair, and I know Vine Pair sounds like it's a wine magazine, but they do have articles about a lot of different things, uh, that quotes Bart Watson from a New England conference that he was at, where he was talking about the craft beer needing an attitude adjustment. And this is actually kind of surprising coming from Bart in terms of uh, being this direct, because I usually think he's much more circumspect about his advice to the market. Uh, but the quote from him was, don't denigrate where consumers are entering craft. Uh, he said during the presentation to the New England Craft Beer Summit earlier this month, I hear brewers sometimes say things like, oh, that lactose smoothie sour is not really a beer. If I'm the consumer and I hear that, I'd say, okay, I don't like beer and go out, search out something else. Um, I don't know if I'd put this fine of a point on it in terms of like, you know, people overhearing brewers in the tap room, but I do kind of get what he's saying. And it's like everybody's got to start somewhere, and if uh, if yeah, if you drive people out of that starter market, they never become the people who want to go have a, a friend pills. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want a lactose smoothie thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's never a good idea to try and insult your potential customers, uh, no, no matter what business you're in uh, or what you say. Um. I can see both sides of uh, of the point of that uh, that article. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's right along with that, yeah, you know, that kind of modern phrase of "don't yuck others' yum." Yeah, um, I, I totally get that, and I totally understand it. And at the same time, I it doesn't mean I still can't grumble a little bit about where the market's going. <laughs> oh yeah, man, <laughs> we both do more than a little yeah. bit. Further and further, we stray from the light. Um, so that's the news for this week. Uh, as always, if you come across interesting stories that you want us to talk about, or you have uh, reactions to the stories that we've talked about, please let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. I guess it's uh, time to head over to the brewery and talk about some crazy stuff you've been working on. Absolutely. Let's do this thing. All right. We'll be right back. This spring, Y-Yeast is featuring two yeast strains that have revolutionized craft brewing. 1056 American Ale and 1318 London Ale 3. These legendary strains have shaped many beers over the decades. And the king of craft beer itself, the IPA. From iconic American IPAs to New England styles, these brewmasters' favorites are available year-round in the Activator Smack Pack system for your next brew day. Our featured strains are complemented with a limited release of 1217 PC West Coast IPA, a yeast with balanced neutral character and a good flocculation, and 2575 PC Kolsch 2 for brewing a German IPA or keeping it traditional with a rich profile and soft malt finish for Kolsch. Available now through June. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and more info on this spring's legacy curation. Let's get brewing. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Air Still Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly. 
just plug and play. The Airstill Pro Calm cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Welcome to the Experimental Brewing Brewery. This is where we do our dark, dirty deeds. Uh, and Drew is going to start off today with a safety warning. Well, I mean, look, I only really brew pale beer these days, most of the time. <laughs> it's not really dark or dirty. Okay, pale, dirty there deeds. All right. I thought this was interesting. This popped up on, uh, on again, on some of my socials. Clawhammer Supply, which is a manufacturer of brew gear, brewing systems, all that sort of fun stuff. They had a Kickstarter a couple of years ago to make a combination keg fermenter. Uh, the whole idea was let's make a system that you can ferment in and actually serve from at the same time, or, well, after fermentation is done. Um, and, you know, made this very kind of interesting-looking keg system. And one of the big features of it was a triclover clamp on top. Now, for whatever reason... There's a certain sect of homebrewers who are absolutely obsessed with the idea of having triclovers everywhere. Uh, Why, that's the way real brewers do it. Right. Now, the problem is triclovers are a really clever system. They're a nice system for getting a more sanitary connection or at least a easier-to-clean, more assured sanitary connection. They're, they also take a little finesse to get used to and how to actually you know make sure that they, they hold. But once you get used to them, great. The problem is, is that triclovers don't have a lot of safety features attached to them. They are inherently designed <laughs> to be quick and movable, which also means that if they're under pressure, they move. Um, yeah. And so in this video that Clawhammer posted to their YouTube channel called The Biggest Mistake of My Life, Kyle Brown, who is sort of the, the head mad scientist of Clawhammer in a lot of ways, was demonstrating the, the fermenter, and this video shows... The big mistake that he had, he had the the fermenter pressurized because it's a fermenter and a keg designed to hold fresh pressure, right? And the triclover clamp on the lid had just one of those flat discs that you use to seal it if you're not adding another attachment like a like a column or or a dry hopping rig or whatever you want to put in there. And absentmindedly, he said because he was shooting multiple videos that day, he wasn't really thinking about it. The keg was pressurized, but mostly with gas and not with any liquid in there. He was fiddling with the triclover to take it off, and as he released it just enough, the pressure forced the lid off, the, off and through the triclover and shot it straight up into the ceiling. And actually, I think the ceiling is like 10 feet up and left a divot in the ceiling. If his head had actually been right over where that was, that would have been very bad. <laughs> he would have had a divot in his head. Yeah, and so the upshot of the video was basically like, oops, that made them stop and rethink this. And so they put together a new system that's going into these kegs that people have bought uh, via Kickstarter. 
I think it's kind of interesting. It sort of rejiggers the triclover a little bit and also says, here, our magic secret is that we have attached the tool in order to remove the triclover to the PRV. So you can't literally take it off until you've depressurized the keg. Um, I think it's a great idea. I don't think it's as safe as everybody's going to think it is because I got cable cutters and I can take that tool off the PRV. Um, but the other upshot is be careful with things like triclovers. They are incredibly dangerous. Anytime you're dealing anything with pressure, it's incredibly dangerous. So if you're going to do this sort of thing, really pay attention and don't be a dumbass. Can I say that? <laughs> yeah, you can say it because that's really true. Yeah. So if you're going to invest your time and money into using triclovers, this is what you want to do. Glory be. Just practice extra caution. And let's uh, let's give them a lot of credit too for uh, taking that uh, that incident to heart and going back to the drawing board to redesign the whole thing. Yeah, I mean because that costs time, money. You know, it, it's a hit to reputation to people who are out there going, "Dude, where's my gig?" So yeah, they did they did the right thing. I'll be interested to see how well that system works. Uh, but uh, if nothing else, credit to Clawhammer for for coming out and saying uh, that's a whoops. Yeah, right. And just my own take on uh, triclover fittings, you probably don't really need them. Uh, I mean, if you just like them because that's what breweries do, then you need to re-examine your priorities. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, for you and I, we have three of the grandfather uh, conicals, and they have triclovers, right. but they have kind of a weird size triclover. Uh, but that's all on the top, and that's really only just for use with the pressure transfer kit. <laughs> well, and then there's there's one that holds the valve on the bottom, oh, yeah, too, right. so... But, yeah, but that's not going to be uh, be anything to worry about. Yep. All right. So now on to brewing before we get to talking with David James about his uh, Czech Amber. And if you want to know what I'm brewing, well, go listen to the last episode. <laughs> 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 the last episode of The Brew Files is all about what I'm preparing to do for tomorrow uh, as we record this. And the upshot of that, if you haven't listened to it, is I'm going to make three beers for the Southern California Homebrews Festival on May 5th. And I got to do it now because I'm a dummy and I've <laughs> delayed way too long. Um, and so the three beers I'm going to make all at once through my two brew systems is going to be a mild, a saison. Neither of those should shock anybody. And then on the separate brew rig I've got, so those will be done on the G40, which I can produce, you know, basically a split patch wort with. And then on the G30, which I still have, I'm going to do the, the, the idea that when I, when I thought about it, Made me giggle. Probably made me thought I was going to irritate Denny just a little bit with it. Uh, it's going to be a Michigan Springtime Cold Pale Ale. <laughs> okay, well, then that just means it's a pale ale. There, there you go. It's Michigan Spring uh, Cold Duck. Um, <laughs> there you go. But it, real, realistically, I've got some malted corn that, that I want to play with. i got some other malts that I need to use up. And Ryan Kay, from, you know, who, who you've heard here on the show before, he sent me a bunch of Michigan-grown uh, hops, and so I'm going to take a bunch of the more tropical-oriented ones and use them to make a nice pale ale. Uh, so that'll be the Michigan Springtime Cold I cold Pale Ale. Not cold IPA, cold pale ale. Which Didn't, didn't you say Cold Fire's coming out with one? Yeah, they are. Uh, that's on their website, uh, listed as coming up soon. <laughs> Here I was thinking I was being clever. <laughs> 
They're more clever than you are. There you go. Now, Denny, if you were tasked with being a dummy and forgetting to brew until the last minute and trying to knock out three beers in one go, what would you do? Uh, I would start with uh, either a barley wine or a double IPA or triple IPA. Probably a barley wine because uh, then I don't have to uh, – if, if I was making like a double IPA, there would be a little bit less grain in there, which you'd use for your second runnings because I'd add sugar to it. So I guess I'd start with a barley wine, then maybe go to uh, an IPA with the second runnings, uh, maybe even a, add a bit of sugar to that if needed. And then the uh, the third one that I would get off of that uh, would be like a pale ale or something like that. Uh, maybe adjusting batch size to uh, compensate for gravity changes. Uh, but yeah, if I was going to do it all off of off of one batch of grain, that is what I would do. Uh, and I would watch my pH very carefully because by that third batch, that uh, that pH could really be rising without the buffering power of the grain to pull it down. Well, and if you're doing it all from uh, one batch, you could always you know, go really old-fashioned and mix together the runnings, do you know, the actual true party aisle. What I prefer to do generally is to just uh, cap the later mashes with some other grain, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, because as you go along, it can start getting thin. Like probably for the third beer, I would uh, probably add some crystal to that to kind of like up the flavor a bit. And uh, again, something like a, like a 60 crystal, even a 40 is dark enough to help pull that pH down some. I didn't think you were allowed to use crystal anymore, but here we are. <laughs> you definitely are allowed to use crystal anymore. All right. Well, here, that's enough of what I'm goofing off with and doing. Let's talk to David. If you guys remember, we had uh, David James from my homebrew club, the Cascade Brewers Society, on a while back to talk about his uh, award-winning Czech Amber Lager. And because David is such a great guy, he actually uh, gave us some to try, along with the uh, Czech Lager from Fox Farms in Connecticut that uh, was his inspiration for the beer. And you know, as as we talked about before, and uh, we'll talk about here again, he kind of like strayed away from that uh, <laughs> to to make a winning beer. Uh, at any rate, uh, go grab yourself a beer unless you're driving, and uh, listen to us enjoying David's beer. Mmm, beer. With us today is Mr. David James, who not only has given us his time, but he gave us some beer to taste. Woo-hoo! Thanks a bunch, David. Yeah, of course. Happy to do it. He not only uh, is giving us his time today, he actually gave us some of his uh, award-winning Czech Amber Lager to try, alongside the beer that was the inspiration for it, Quiet Fire from Fox Farm Brewery. And where's Fox Farm, David? Uh, Salem, Connecticut. Salem, Connecticut. Okay. There are Salem's everywhere. Yeah, there are Salem's (laughs) everywhere. Yeah, I think the Salem, Connecticut might be a little older than the Salem, Oregon, but. Yeah, it's kind of like if you look around, uh, you how many Orange counties you find. Right. You know, you know, uh, Tom Maliazzi claimed that there was a Springfield in every state in the union. So, Uh, you know, he might be right. No, he wasn't. They actually went through it. There, there are only thirty-four Springfields, but there, there are seventy-six Midways, and four of them are in Tennessee. How's that for a little (laughs) bit of uh, information? 
Signs that you two may have been listening to too much car talk. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay, enough of that stuff. How about a beer? Yay. Sounds good. Okay, I'm going to pop this baby here. I'll open my can. Yeah, I I like the fact that we have bottles here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I One of my self-gifts back during um, – during the pandemic and the stimulus package and all that stuff was, was to buy a, a can seamer. Um, nice. And I, I love it to death in terms of being able to, to bottle something up real quick or, or if I'm going to ship something. Um, but I think when it comes to battling stuff like oxidation and long-term storage and stuff like that, you really can't beat a counter pressure filler and a, a glass bottle. Well, the, yep. that's part of the reason why I want to test out some of the. I think it's Tapa Cooler has like a effectively yeah. a, counter, a counter pressure can filler. That's um, what I. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, I use their standard counter pressure for bottles, but I've also rigged it for cans with just a, a hand clamp, like a, a wood clamp. Yeah. And a, and a larger stopper, and that that works in a pinch, but. Yeah. Um, true. But yeah, they have a very fancy one. That's nice. That's true homebrewer creativity, man. So, uh, which one of the can seamers do you have? Like the October, the cannular, the the, the cannular, yeah, the, the non-professional cannular, the 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 you know which pressure it yourself cannula. Yeah, which is the one from uh, uh, More Beer. Yes, yeah, yeah. So they sell um, their own. I think it's sixteen ounce tall boy cans, um, and I think they have an adapter for the smaller cans too. But uh, the larger cans are, are are pretty nice actually. Okay, right. enough talking. Let's drink. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think I've been doing? Um, well, what I mean, right a great off the bat, aroma. Just, wow. Well, the, the aroma to me is all like toasted hazelnuts. That's a that's a good description. Oh man, and just that mm, a, a little sweetness, but not too much. And quite, what is that on the back end there? You know what I get is I get a combination of toasted hazelnuts and um, New England brown bread. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had people say this reminds me of a loaf of rye bread, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I had to really restrain myself from from putting. I have a tendency to throw a little bit of rye in in most of my recipes if I if I can make it fit. But um, good on you. So uh, instead of carafa, um, uh, I've used chocolate rye pretty frequently. Just it's it's mm-hmm. got a lot of that spice that some of the uh, traditional continental hops have, and uh, works really well with some of these kind of old school lager recipes, but uh, this one surprisingly doesn't have any rye, but, but yeah, very, very bready. Well, and I was going to say, very I think, bready. now does this, does this follow the recipe that we had talked about before, which was Metolius, Gateway, Venora, uh, Karamunic 3, uh, Melanoid, and Biscuit? Yep, yep, yep. Mm. This is that same batch. All right. And so that means, folks, you can actually go back and look online and see the recipe and understand what we're talking about here. But yeah, I'm I'm really impressed with the fact that it really does come off like a can of B and W molasses bread, along with toasted <laughs> hazelnuts. And if if you know what I'm talking about, then you know exactly the smell and aroma I'm talking about. And it's kind of like that, but muted. It's not the full full blast in your face molasses and raisins, but it's close. Mm. But it, I mean, it, what's really nice is is the malt character. I mean, you know, so many people think that you know malty beers are sweet beers and this this definitely is not. It's uh, it's nicely balanced. You get you get a full dose of your daily malt flavor, uh, but man, it's really really perfectly balanced. Yeah, and so the notes I had on this it starts around ten sixty or so and thirty eight IBUs, and 
what I think is really interesting about the structure of the beer is right up front, it's got enough malt presence and richness that it almost feels bockish in a way. Right, right. Uh, yeah, a, l- a little bit more going around the edges than I think normally you'd expect with a bock. But it feels almost bockish in the front. And then as you go to do the swallow and it starts to clear your palate, it dries out intensely. And right then is actually when I start to get the the, the bittering, that, that magnum, that zots that's in here. Just yeah. because that that then is actually my final impression. Yeah. Is, yeah, a little bit of dryness, a little bit of toasty, Zweibecky type thing, and then herbal bitterness all across my tongue. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, it's, it's got a beautiful herbal finish to it, man. I just love that. I've had a heck of a time um, over the last – if you guys will remember, this this actually first started out as a as a Bach um, back in 2019, this recipe. And um, I entered it. Enter, ent- entering it into a competition on a whim as a, as a check amber and, and kind of shifted things from there. Uh, but I've had a heck of a time figuring out appropriate bitterness levels for, for beers like this, because like you said, you do want that, um, that multi presence and that, and that sweetness as kind of a supporting character, but you don't want it uh, to become dominating, which it tends to be in a lot of, of, of the box. Um, so, so 38 works, uh, pretty well. I, I think you could probably even go up as, as high as some of the low 40s, depending on um, you know what you're what you're doing. I tend to do a clean bittering hop like Magnum um, for the majority of the IBUs, um, and then that Zotz character, that that kind of spice, uh, is really only from a 10 minute addition um, of about an ounce or an ounce and a half at, at the tail end of the boil, uh, and that that has worked. Pretty well, I think, but uh, I do want to kind of fiddle with it a little bit more. Well, if you're not fiddling with it, are you truly a humber? <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. As long as I'm not going backwards, I, I think it's a success. Um, yeah. But, that's that, tough to do sometimes. Well, that, yeah, I was going to say, that's what happens with me, man. I try and improve something, and it goes the other way. Well, and we've even talked multiple times on the on the show about, like, oh, yeah, I went back to the, an older version of the formula and decided I like that better. After yep. after much yep. mucking with it, yeah, um, right. Now, I, I we didn't talk about it during the show, but yes, check dark lager. Okay, so or check amber lager. I mean, it's not really an obscure style. It's not a forgotten style that's been rediscovered. You know, it's been a style that's been ongoing forever and a damn day. But I, at least to my mind, I think most American even beer aficionados wouldn't have a real strong sense of the style. And that even goes to judges. Do you ever find that you have issues with judges having this and saying it's either too style or not to style or da, 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 you know, all that? Yeah, of course. Um, I think, I mean, as you guys are sure keenly aware, I think BJCP comps are, are subjective in their very nature, right? It's impossible um, to avoid that kind of stuff. It's kind of, kind of what makes it fun. Um, but I do feel like when this style gets lumped in um, with some of the other styles that are a little bit more recognizable, um, it's the style that ends up kind of uh, suffering because of it. Um, because like you said, not, not everyone knows what a check amber is like. They can, they can be subjective and say, yeah, this is, this matches the description as, as listed and uh, it's a good beer, but um, you know, everyone can recognize a Vienna. Everyone can recognize a Marzen. Uh, not everyone's going to be able to recognize a, a, a check amber or check dark for for what it is. Um, 
so so yes, it, it, it's definitely something that that gets factored into the judging aspect of competitions. Well, so what do you think, Drew? Should we try the Fox Farm? No, no, I want to keep trying this one first. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you said, hey, you know, like you're playing around with it. Like when you entered it in as a box, what sort of reception did you get to it? Uh, actually, it was pretty pretty favorable. Um, uh, if if I can remember correctly, some of the some of the comments were that it was a little too dry and that it didn't have quite um, the caramel punch that that a lot of box should have. Um, and that's kind of what made me say, all right, well, I'm going to run the other direction and kind of take it into check amber territory instead. Um, but I think you could probably take this recipe with some minor modifications, drop you know, drop the IBUs, maybe uh, up the Karamunic or, or uh, add some other stuff, and, and it would become a, a really nice Dunkelsbach, or um, you could add more grain and make it a Doppelbach or something like that. And if you were going to take and make this into a Czech dark, as mm-hmm. opposed to an amber, what would you? What direction would you take it? Um, that's a good question. Uh, so you know, obviously, it the interesting thing about a, a Czech dark is, is yes, it's a, a dark lager and it has those roasty notes and and all that complexity associated with that, but it's not like overly astringent or overly dry uh, or or overly roasty. Um, certainly more so than a short spear, but but. Um, it's not like a, a black IPA or something like that. Um, uh, I guess those aren't technically all that roasty either. But uh, so so probably upping um, some of the uh, um, caramel notes and certainly upping the roast level. So adding in some some dehusked carafa, um, or if you want to be um, a little bit more experimental, you could go into pale chocolates or, or some of the lighter um, roasted roasted malts and just a small amount, probably 5%, something like that, to get some extra extra notes in there. But the, the base recipe, which tends to be Munich-heavy uh, or Pilsner-heavy with a lot of decoctions, is, is still, I think, um, kind of a tenant for this style. Right. And just to remind people, because what you're using a, a hawker's uh, sort of step mash schedule, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're not doing decoctions on this? Um, not on this most recent batch. I've, I've done it in the past. Um, it's like you, there's an argument to be made that it's that it's a different a different beer after a decoction, but um, I think the difference is, is pretty small, and I don't feel like spending an extra two to three hours doing decoctions, so melanoid malt works, works, works for me. Um uh, and then, and then on top of that, what what I've gotten into recently is just just taking you know three or four quarts and and boiling it down to a syrup basically um, to get some of those really heavy uh, Maillard reactions and and some of that you know early sugar caramelization um, and then adding that back into the boil at the end and that works that works pretty well I think it seems pretty it's reasonable a, to me. Uh, Denny, do you have any other questions about the the check amber? You know, I I don't think so. I think that we talked it through pretty well before. So now it's just uh, tasting and, and relating what we taste to what we know. And I'm enjoying that part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is definitely uh, this is definitely a very tasty beer. I'd be like with something like a, a Czech beer or a lot of the German beers out there. One of the things I always wonder is like, okay, how's it how's it do? on the second half liter or second liter, right? Right, right. 
And so, I mean, this has a big enough mouthfeel to it uh, and kind of enough, you know, oomph that I'd be really curious, like, okay, back to back, could I do multiples of this? Or would this be like, have one of these, have a Pilsner, you know, something like right. that. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah so that's, that's what I was reading is that a lot of, um, you know, a lot of these super old breweries in, in the Czech Republic, um, they won't have a ton of different styles. And a lot of times you'll walk in and they'll just give you a beer. Um, you know, you won't be able to pick what you want. Uh, and so there'll be, um, they'll be divvied up by the Play-Doh or, or whatever. And then a few of them will also have an amber and or a dark. Uh, and so you can kind of bounce between the three of those. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's a lot of those kind of, you know, 10 Play-Doh uh, um, pails uh, as the kind of the big thing for that brewery. You know, I can really uh, detect the Bach heritage in this beer. It's probably the, the, the Caramunic as high as it is. Um, uh, I think if people wanted it a little bit drier um, uh, or a little bit lighter, they could probably drop that down uh, maybe to just a, a pound instead of a pound and a half. Right, right. Okay, Drew, you ready for the other one? Oh, sure. Okay. And for people who uh, who were not privy to the pre-roll on this, which is everybody who's not on here right now, uh, <laughs> I had to go break out my frat science and go uh, chill this can down with some nice salted ice water just to get it cold enough so we'd be able to talk because I forgot. Uh-oh. Never forget. Science is handy. <laughs> it can make beer cold. Okay. All right. Okay, so the color is definitely lighter on this one. Yep. Yeah, more uh, more orange tone. Although, interestingly, and it may just be because I was doing the agitation. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same tone, maybe just a shade lighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think I get more orange red highlights out of this, and that yeah. may be because, as you said, it's, the David's version is darker. Love the head on this too. It's got yeah. Kind of nice, slightly beigey thing. Mm-hmm. Now the nose on it is not nearly as malt forward as, yeah. as your version. Uh, I do still get a little bit of that sort of uh, toasted, like Melba toast is a Ibeck thing. Uh-huh. Um, also get a little more hop spice up front in this one. The body, the body is definitely not as uh, as big. But what's uh, what's interesting? Okay, so David, how big was yours uh, in terms of alcohol? Uh, this was just shy of six percent. Okay, and the and the Fox Farm is four point eight. Yep. <laughs> so. That's again, I think, Big some of that difference. Bach heritage uh, showing in. For sure. Um, the thing that's interesting with the Fox Farm is okay, so the cans we have were canned in late January. As we're recording this, it's late March, so two months later, uh, which for something like a Czech Amber is not detrimental. It's not a hazy after all. Um, but what I do think is interesting is here, I get a little bit of that. Uh, that little sort of brown, sugary, slightly buttery oxidative note mm-hmm. that I always associate uh, associate with like imported lagers. Right. Do, do you understand what I'm talking about, Denny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, uh, and that's that's exactly what what I'm getting too. Which is yeah. interesting because not imported. Right. I um, 
it's it's always something I guess you gotta to to take into account when you're when you're cracking a can. Um, unless it's a, a really really big brewery uh, or they have a very expensive canning lineup, yeah. um, you know, chances all are all they're doing is flushing with CO two and then filling. So. Um, uh, you know, and you I know. don't really find that character detrimental. It, it no. just is there, you know. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, a, a lot of styles, it, it certainly adds adds an extra level to it. Well, it's kind of a little bit of that argument about uh, diacetyl and uh, check bills, for instance. Right, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, it, it, it is definitely interesting. I can see where these do draw parallels. Oh yeah. Um, but again, like your version, David, is much more malt forward. It's much richer. Some of that, and not all of that's just due to the bigger gravity. I think some of it also comes down to the malt choices there and there. For sure. But I can also see the lineage, like the, the common thread. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it, these are, this isn't brother and sister. This is first cousins. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Does yeah, that sound yeah. weird? No, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I, that's a, that's a great way to describe it, man, because the, the beers are not, you know, identical, but you, there's a connection between them, you know? Yeah. So I'm still getting that toasted malt thing, right? I'm, like I said up front, like I get that, with this one, I get more of that Zweibeck, that Melba toast thing, as opposed to the, uh, the BNW molasses brown bread. But it's still this very strong bready note. Mm-hmm. And that's what yeah. gives this domination. The ending feels very, very similar to me. Like right. both of these come into that nice dry finish with a long herbal hoppy character uh, tied around it. Um, David, I think yours feels more hoppy in the back end right. than this one does. And again, that's not, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying that's the difference I'm noticing. Noticing. Yeah. Yeah, not at all. I think uh, my hopping rate and what I've, I I tend to, to brew larger beers. Um, not that I don't enjoy a, a low gravity lager. It's just a something I've gotten into from from earlier days. Um, oh yeah. I think my hopping rate is is probably pretty reflective of that. So I think if you were to take um, my recipe or a similar recipe and and drop it down a, a percentage point in ABV, um, you could probably also drop the IBUs by by five or 10 and, and be in that same range. Um, I am, I am interested to, to maybe possibly reach out to Fox farm and see what they're doing for a grist for theirs uh, and see how closely they line up. Yeah. Yeah. Because yours tastes very much just like a bigger version of theirs. So, you know, and breweries are generally pretty, uh, pretty helpful when it comes to asking them about recipes. So maybe you can find out. Yeah. I was going to say there, some sometimes. Yeah. Well, there really until like breweries, reach a certain size, it's very much kind of like if you ever want to read a science paper and you don't have access to, say, the scientific journals, because who yeah. wants to pay $900,000 per year to have right, access exactly. to all the science journals? The The secret is to go email the people writing the science papers, or in this case, the people running the brewery. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Generally very happy to share. Yeah, yep. that's, that's true. Yeah. After all, the recipe is only one part of the secret sauce. Um, exactly. And now I'd also, I would venture a big guess that we also see a difference here between your beer and their beer, not just on, say, grist percentages, but also very much on that choice of the uh, the maltster. So in this particular yeah. case, most of this beer, most of your beer has mecha grade in it. And, yeah. and those mecha grade malts, like Danny and I have talked about many times before, 
are more punchy. They, they, they get a little bit more in your face. They carry a little more uh, back into them. Uh, so I'd be curious. I would, or actually I wouldn't be curious. I would bet you that even if they were to do exactly your grist, but we're using, say, Vireman as opposed to Mecha Grade, we would see even the same sort of difference. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, hell, you could you could take the same recipe and give it to three different brewers and get three different versions of the same beer. Um, and that's even using the same same the same maltster. So, um, yeah, throwing throwing in a different maltster uh, is definitely going to shift things quite a bit. Yeah. Now, when you, when you taste these two side by side, what do you get? Um, it's been a while since I've had Fox. I actually gave you two my last two cans of the Fox Farm um, <laughs> ever. The, the the last time I had it um, uh, with this most recent recent batch that that I brewed, um, I was I was actually pretty pleased at how how similar they were. Um, I did definitely get the difference in terms of uh, you know. Body and, and alcohol content. There was there was a little bit um, uh, a little bit more oomph um, in my version, but uh, I was pretty contented in in the final product. So I haven't actually um, shifted my recipe since the last batch, and uh, I do want to rebrew it sometime in the near future and 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 see how it comes out again and uh, see how it does. But um, for the time being, the the um, the recipe that I'm sitting on, I'm, I'm, I'm liking quite a bit. As you should. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and, and, I mean, ultimately, with all the stuff that we talk about with in terms of metals, in terms of styles, do you fit this Procrustean bed of, you know, the BJCP style guidelines or whoever's guidelines for a particular thing? At the end of the day, despite all that other concerns, the only thing that matters is are you happy with what comes out of the glass and into your face? Right. That's right. right. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, and by the way, I know a lot of people get sort of defensive when Denny and I talk about things like how we don't like X to the Y to the Z. You know, like neither of us are huge Lodo people. Neither of us are uh, big Hazy fans. Uh, remember, ours is just one opinion. And really, again, it all just matters. What do you enjoy going in your mouth? Yeah, that's right. Homebrewing is a personal experience. Do what makes you happy. Yeah, after all, if you're not happy after having a beer, what are you doing? (laughs) That's right, man. That's what it's all about. Right. All right. Well, David, thanks for coming back again, man. Thanks for uh, giving up your last Fox Farm and a couple (laughs) bottles of your uh, award-winning batch. Absolutely Uh, my pleasure. Great, man. Well, hopefully uh, we can get together in person one of these days for a beer. Uh, that sounds good, yeah. It, 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 it should, if you're in San Diego time. for HumbrewCon, I promise I will buy you a beer at Humber Club night. I will absolutely let you guys know if I can make it down. Please please do, man. Uh, we'd love to have you down uh, to get together with you down there, and uh, we're going to be doing a podcast, so uh, we could make you a three-time guest. There we go. It's <laughs> <laughs> a land speed record. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a bunch. Talk to you later. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Thoughts? You know, it was a really interesting comparison because I I think both of the beers were kissing cousins. Uh, David's was definitely more, well, it showed more of its Bach heritage. Yeah. Um, it, it really did. Uh, it was, uh, 
compared to the Fox Farm beer, it was a, a much bigger beer, a lot more mouthfeel to it, a darker beer. But yeah, you could, you could kind of see where it had come from. Mm-hmm. And both absolutely dang tasty. So send us more dang tasty beer, please. <laughs> yeah, please. Okay, now for more beer tasting and discussion, we're going to head over to the lounge and talk to Mr. Stephen J. Poor. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3,300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. Experimental Brewing Lounge. Uh, we have our feet up. Uh, I'm smoking a pipe. I don't know what Drew's smoking over there. Uh, <laughs> My brain. But uh, yeah, right. We're going to talk to Steve Poor, uh, a longtime home brewer. Uh, if you've been around the home brewing community for a while, you've no doubt run across his name. Uh, he sent me three beers, uh, an IPA made by a local craft brewery that is supposedly based on a recipe of mine that I only have the vaguest recollection of, <laughs> like many things in my life. <laughs> and uh, two beers that he made, a uh, Belgian Dark Strong and an Imperial Stout. And, wow, they were great. So, anyway, here's time for Steve. Sit back, relax. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. 
Today here in the lounge, we are joined by Mr. Stephen J. Poor, brewer extraordinaire. <laughs> thanks for taking the time to join us today, Steve. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Oh, man. You know, you sent me those beers, and they were so good that I knew that we had to have you on to talk. But let's let's talk about you first. So how long have you been brewing, man? Um... I was looking back. I'm uh, probably between 10 to 15 years. Right. And from the pictures I've seen, you have the, uh, the, the big full blown multi vessel system, right? Yeah. So, um, during the, uh, lockdowns during COVID, it was like, well, what, what better things can we do? So the wife and I decided to build a brewery in my old wood shop. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your system. So I'm running a uh, three-vessel Herms. Um, I use the Warthog 360 or whatever it is, uh, EBC 360, as my controller. Um, got that from a High Gravity. Great group of folks out there. Uh, most of the internals then are all Blickman, so I'm using the boil coil in the HLT and in the uh, brew kettle, and then in the mash ton um, i'm not a really big fan of my mash ton it's a kegel um false bottom yeah your standard mash ton uh but i'm using the blickman um recirc uh float um, right. and then i use the riptides um a lot of stuff from blickman it's a mix of blickman and uh, high gravity wow man that sounds like a, a fairly extensive setup there it was fun to build. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a tinkerer, so I like to mess around with that stuff. So was there one component that you were building that gave you fits? Um, cause I always think from an engineering perspective, the, the most interesting bits are the ones that make you want to kind of swear and grit your teeth. Yeah. So one of the, one of the, uh, it's, it's funny cause my kettles, I really love the kettles. They're uh brew bill kettles. I think they're, some of the best kettles on the market, but it's, it's kind of scary drilling holes in $300. Pots. <laughs> yeah, man, I'll bet. Um, you only get to do far, that once. Yeah, exactly. That's it. But it makes you sweat the whole time through. So, um, no, I mean, for the most part, I've researched it. It's a mix between, um, uh, a couple of friends of mine systems like, uh, Wally Feck, he's a brew tuber and Mike Dean from the Dean's list. Um, I kind of build it off of their two systems. So, uh, what's your favorite thing to brew, man? Man, I, I just like doing different stuff right now. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm on the, I'm, I'm trying to get on the kick of a little bit lower ABV beers. Now, of right. course, that is not I what I said. No, <laughs> not even close. Not even close. But that's what I'm shooting for right now. Um, right now, I actually, I brewed over the weekend. I have a Czech lager in the uh, fermenter. So she's sitting there uh, lagering away right now. Wow. So tell me about that one. Uh, what, what's the recipe for that off the top of your head? I mean, just pills, malt, noble hops. Yeah. Yeah, mostly pills, um, a little bit of Munich in it just uh -huh. to give it a little bit of biscuit and, you know, a, 
very small touch of flavor. Um, I used basically bittering hops. You could use almost anything, you know, in the beginning, and I chose Zythos, and then mm-hmm. the rest of it's all Saz. So uh, it's a very simple. I'm using the uh, Lalamade um, Diamond Lager yeast. So. Oh, yeah, I love that stuff, man. Um, this is the um, first time using this. We're seeing how it goes. Yeah, it's a very oh, clean well, yeast. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I find a. I mean, thirty four seventy is a very popular yeast, and rightly so. But I've always found Diamond to be just a little bit cleaner and crisper than the thirty four seventy. Uh, awesome. Then that'll fit right in with the Czech Lager, then. Yeah, well, man, you can't rule out that I screwed something up with the thirty four seventy too. So, <laughs> never. <laughs> That's always possible. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into talking about these beers. Uh, you sent me three of them, and one of them was uh, the Falcon's Prey IPA from Scrubby's Beer. Yeah. So uh, t- tell me, let's start by talking about Scrubby's Beer. Uh, what is Scrubby's? <laughs> so uh, Scrubby's, it's neat. It's it's a little uh, pub, really. The, the fellow that um, is brewing for that, he brews out of his garage. And uh, the tap room is the, uh, I know it doesn't mean anything to you guys, for, but for us from Red Lion, Pennsylvania, it's the uh, bowling alley, which is right down the street from our old high school, which is oh, kind of, cool. yeah, which is kind of neat. We spent most of our time in that bowling alley as kids, and now there's actually a little tap room in there. So uh, Emory started a bowling alley? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they just added, they, what they did was... <sighs> I think they took the pro shop and turned it into the tap room, which is cool. Oh, uh, that's great, man. So um, Emery brews out there and serves his beer, and Falconer's Prey was a um, collaboration between him and uh, Chuck Jennings, one of the guys in our local homebrew club. Um, he tried the beer. Chuck had it on tap, and he's been helping him out. So he tasted the beer, and he was like, oh, i got to brew this and put it on tap. <laughs> that's great so and i noticed it's all falconer's flight hops do you happen to know which particular blend that was because there were several of them i do not i'm going to guess it's probably the seven seas would be my right. guess yep certainly certainly tasted like that um, and that was uh loosely based off of one of your recipes from <laughs> years back wow uh I, i'm honored uh I, I don't remember. <laughs> no, I I remember using Falconer's Flight a lot because Glenn was a was a, a friend. So uh, you know when those hops came out, I had to brew with him. So where so this kind of like was inspired by one of my recipes, but man, it was I don't remember making a beer this good <laughs> with those. So let let me go through my notes here, right? Sure. So first, first of all, I got to say this was one of those cans where the whole top comes off, so you can like drink from the can, kind of like it was a glass. Yeah. Uh, and I, I did that a little bit, but you know, man, I'm I'm a glass guy. I, I had to do that. So, but when I popped that can, I got this huge, huge citrus aroma. Uh, lots of lots of orange, some lime, a little bit of lemon. Uh, and, and the first sip was just like this huge, huge Mandarin Clementine kind of flavor. You know, I, I just absolutely adore that kind of stuff. That's a, being an old school IPA fan. That's, that's my, uh, my, my, up my alley. Uh, yeah, the I agree. That's, 
the, yeah, the right. West Coast IPA side is is spot on. I mean, that, that, to me, it's it was like a traditional beer almost. Right, right. Um, so I found that the bitterness was quite assertive, as it should be for uh, for a West Coast IPA. I'm going to go back and look at the recipe here and see if I, someplace it says the IBUs, right? Uh, I believe it does. Let me see. Ah, yes. Okay. 71 IBU, uh, 1057 OG, 1011 FG. And it came out to about uh, 6.7%. A, a really, really nice drinking beer, man. Uh, okay. Back to my notes here. I got so many of them windows open. <laughs> either, either the aroma had kind of dissipated. Or my nose wasn't working that day, which is entirely possible. That's why I've retired from judging. You know, some days I can smell and some days I can't. Uh, Do do you remember anything about the aroma on it? It was very, um, from what I can remember, it had that, you know, the nice citrus notes in the the aroma, some sweetness to back it up. Uh, Nice malt uh, background, really. Um, you probably lost a good bit of the aroma because that was straight off the tap and they, they didn't, um, it was like n- not even one of those hoses that goes to the bottom. He just went right off the tap, capped it. And I'm like, all right, I got to send this out to Denny. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great, man. So the net, my next note, as a matter of fact, said uh, slight crystal malt flavor mid palate might be crystal 20 judging by the color. And you sent me the recipe, and damn, I was right on that one at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is crystal twenty in there, but what I really liked it was it was just the perfect amount of sweetness to balance the bitterness, but not diminish the perception of it. I mean, the, the beer did not taste sweet in any way, but it didn't taste overly bitter either. But it, it had a very lingering, dry finish to it. Um, and the surprising thing about that was I didn't get any hop astringency whatsoever in the finish. And that's something that I'm very, very sensitive to because so many beers these days are kind of overwhelmed by it. Gotcha. So I thought, I thought that that was like a, a really, really good feat to be able to get so much, uh, hop character uh, in, in the finish without being astringent. Overall, it was just a killer example of a, a West Coast IPA. Uh, I really enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, I put on a movie and sat there for the rest, rest of the afternoon sipping on it. Nice. So, yeah. So thank the guys for me. Tell them that uh, it was a delicious beer, and I really enjoyed it, and uh, I appreciate you sending it over to me. Cool. Well, you're very welcome. I will make sure I pass that on. Great, great. Okay, so then there were two beers from you, uh, two of my favorite styles. Uh, so let's, let's start with the BDSA, the, uh, the dark mystery Belgian dark strong ale. Now you have Pilsner malt, uh, you have Maris Otter, you have Red X, you have flaked <laughs> oats, you have aromatic malt. You have six row. What what possessed Wait. you to put six row? <laughs> Wait, hold on. I, I have to ask. What's the name of the spear? It's called Dark Mystery. Not kitchen sink. 
That kitchen sink. <laughs> but once I get into the story behind it, it might make a little bit of sense. Okay, so let me just run through the rest of the ingredients here. You have a pound of candy sugar. This is, of course, for a, a five-gallon batch. You have a pound of candy sugar and a pound of turbinado. Uh, and then uh, uh, nice nice hops, uh, millennium, autumn, um, you know, in there. Uh, just at, at the proper level for them. Then you use mangrove jacks, Belgian ale yeast. And I have always said that I haven't found a dry Belgian yeast that I like, but I may have to change my tune on that because uh, it, it really had a lot of nice phenolic character to it. So let's hear the backstory, buddy. So dark mystery. Um, the, the, the way this beer starts out really is, um, it was a little while back, but I did for our local club was put together a challenge for them. I'm kind of famous for doing that kind of stuff. Yes, and, you are. Uh, <laughs> so what I did was I put a whole bunch of bags together. And uh, being that I used to own a homebrew supply store, I still have a lot of stuff sitting around. So I went through and I threw in, I don't know, it was like six different um, items in every bag. And every bag was different. And then every bag was numbered, and it was a like a, a pick a number out of the hat. You know, your number corresponds with the bag. Take right. that bag home, you know, and you must brew with everything in that bag. Plus, you can add to it if you like, you know. And uh, but build a beer from the mystery bag, and uh, that's where this beer came from, which is one of the <laughs> okay. reasons why you see all the stuff. Which the second name probably could have been kitchen sink. <laughs> <laughs> The brown paper bag special. Yeah, yeah, the brown bag special, exactly. Um, the other part of this is, so the whole group of our uh, local club, we all brewed, do, brewed these. And uh, when we did our tasting, you know, it was a couple months later, we were like, wow, these things really turned out good. <laughs> <laughs> so I had said to him this was for last year's um, Iron Brewer, which is a – uh, it's a pretty good size competition over here in South Central Pennsylvania, over on the Lancaster side of the river. And uh, a bunch of us entered those beers into that competition. And wouldn't you know, every single one of those beers, now they were all different styles, but every single one of them actually won an award in that, in that, uh, in <laughs> wow. that competition. So it was pretty wow. cool. Man, that is the definition of serendipity right there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go through my notes on it. Uh, I start off go saying it pours a crystal clear reddish brown. It was just a beautiful, beautiful looking beer, man. I was worried about the IBU level being a, a little bit high, mm -hmm. but actually it's not. <laughs> it just, it was, it was a perfect, perfect balance there. Uh, there was a, a bit of sweetness mid palate, but not too much. I was guessing special B, but I'd be wrong about that. And uh, I have written down here as long as I'm guessing maybe Rochefort yeast and candy syrup. I got the candy syrup, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if, if that uh, mangrove jack, though, gives that character, I, I, it's something I definitely have to start checking into because I, I really enjoyed that, uh, the yeast character from the beer. 
had kind of a a toffee aroma to it, which was extremely pleasant, uh, kind of light plastic phenols, which I just absolutely love in a Belgian beer. Medium light body, and I said almost too drinkable for the ABV, which is eleven point three percent. I'll just toss that out there right now. Uh, it's a sessionable, is- sessionable beer, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe for you, buddy. <laughs> this is this is one that I it just happened to be snowing the day that I tried it, so I just kind of like sat there and uh, took two and a half hours or so to kind of like sip it and enjoy it. Uh, and then I tried not to walk afterwards. Uh, <laughs> it had a, a great raisin fig and stone fruit flavor to it. it I, the alcohol was extremely well disguised for an 11.3 beer. You would never know it was there. And then my uh, final note was great job of BDSA. I want this recipe. <laughs> I've got it now. Although, you know, maybe I maybe I should just kind of go close my eyes and start pulling things out of my grain bins at random. <laughs> like, like You'd you probably come up with the same thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you used that mangrove uh, jack yeast before? The M forty seven. Yeah, we have twenty seven. Um, excuse me. Yeah. Yep. M twenty seven. Actually, my wife likes to use that yeast. Um, on her Belgians, she really enjoys the Belgians and, uh, that's probably her favorite yeast to use. And I think the, what made this one work a little bit, cause really for that size of the beer, the, you know, the original gravity one, it was in the 1090s, I believe. And, uh, it was probably slightly underpitched. So I think it stressed that yeast a little bit, which may have had some of those characteristics come through a little bit better. Yeah, that is entirely possible. So I see here on your recipe too, you got like 82% efficiency on this. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. A, yeah, that was, that was a that, crazy efficient beer. Yeah, that's really remarkable for, uh, for that big a grain bill, man. Uh, it, I, I, again, I, I guess it's the clean living, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that always does it. Okay, and the final beer you sent me was a big one also, uh, Revolution Imperial Stout at 11%, 63.2 IBUs, and 54 SRM. Uh, and, you know, and I have to say that in, in a big Imperial Stout, I really like to see the IBUs getting up there. Uh, there's just something about it that, that gives it the bite it needs to cut through all the darkness. So that, that was great. Uh, an immediate alcohol aroma that dissipated quickly and then kind of turned to, to roast and coffee. Uh, a hit of bitterness and roast up front, lovely toffee slash coffee mid palate, lingering chocolate finish. Very warming from the alcohol. For some reason, the alcohol was more apparent in this one uh, than it was in the Dark Mystery, but it wasn't off-putting at all. You know, it, it wasn't like strongly alcoholic. Uh, the body was just right, medium full without going over the top. Uh, the high IBUs kept it from becoming cloying, and uh, the last line is, delicious right now, seems like it will age well. Uh, did you did you put some aside, man? That uh, you got the last uh, last. I think oh. I, I have some old Revolution stuff back here, but uh, the secret to that beer is the barrel that it was aged in. So 
Oh, tell me about that. So um, everything that I put into uh, that particular barrel, I call it's a revolution beer, you know, or whatever. And uh, this was the last beer that I ran through that that barrel. I had was aging a grappa in it prior um, at full strength, so about 180-ish proof in barrel. Um, when I pulled that out, um, I was like, well, yeah, there's really nothing that's going to live through that, so we're going to go straight in with this stout. And I let the stout, <laughs> the stout sit in there for um, eight months and pulled it out. Um, and that really, it, what I really liked about it is, is you do get the, the oak tannins, you know, in that beer. They're, they're there. Right. You can almost tell it was like, wow, yeah, this definitely had some wood on it. So um, that's where the revolution comes from. Oh, cool, man. Well, let me let me run through the grain bill on this here just real quick. And for all you guys out there, we're going to have all of these recipes on our website so you can brew like Steve. But uh, this one this one uses uh, U.S. Uh, pale malt and Maris Otter, a uh, fair amount of white wheat malt, some uh, black patent, a, a lot of black patent, more than I would have the guts to use, man. <laughs> There was a uh, chocolate malt, uh, some 80 crystal, uh, Franco Belge coffee. Uh, there was some honey malt and red X. I'll bet you the honey malt really made a big impact on that beer. You know, I can see with all that roast malt, that honey malt might be what it really needed to keep it mellowed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hops, you know, Cascade and 007 Golden Hop. I've never heard of that one before. But then we get to the end, and you pitched this with Hornendahl Quike. Yep. And, okay. <laughs> I, I have always said that I have never tried a Quike beer that I liked, and now, damn it, you're going to make me take that back. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason behind that was is I, I wanted that fruitiness to come through because the, there was so much black patent and chocolate malt in there. You know, I knew that the honey would help it, and the red X kind of you know helps with the color side of things. But I, I wanted that plum and dark fruit notes in there. The best way to get that is heat up a kvike. So, what temp did you ferment it at? This one I fermented at ninety three degrees. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you're crazy. Uh, well, uh, you know, I say you're crazy, but it worked. And so that's what really matters, isn't it? Yeah, I used a combination of uh, a uh, one of those heat belts that you put on, you know, fermenters. And I used my wife's electric blanket to be able to get it up there and, and keep it there. So I was I was. I was I was afraid because I thought for sure I was going to come down and that stuff was going to be all over the basement, but uh, it made it through. I got lucky. Well, given Imperial Stout's usual reputation for painting people's ceilings, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, now, of course, the other question that everybody's going to ask because, hey, you use Quike, uh, 93 degrees, how long of a ferment? Um, so I did 93 degrees for five days. And then I just let everything, I took everything off and just let it come to ambient and let it set for, uh, it was probably two or three weeks while I was getting the, uh, the, getting ready to get the, the barrel prepared for it. And then it secondaried in the barrel. 
And how long was it in the barrel? Eight months. Wow. Man. <laughs> no wonder. You know, it's like what you've done here is put together a great combination of crazy ideas and perfect technique. And both of these beers were just like stunningly good. You know, I, I wish I would have made those beers. Oh, well, I appreciate that. That, that, uh, that means a lot. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that it does, but, uh, what really should mean a lot to you is that you're able to pull that off, buddy. Uh, that's just, you know, really great. And, uh, all, all your friends and fellow brewers are really lucky to be able to try these beers. We actually served that at, uh, Yorktoberfest. We have a, um, a, uh, I use that as a, um, oh, the, uh, VIP. So in the beginning of your first, you know, first hour, the VIPs were able to come through and, and our club puts together, um, they represent very well our local events. And, uh, the first hour, you know, the VIPs would go through and, you know, get their special beers. And I took a, uh, three, three gallon keg of this for that. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was pretty much a talk of the event and they kept coming back for more. <laughs> oh man. Really? Hopefully short pours only. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, so, Mr. Poor, I know that Denny's spent a lot of time praising the experimental things that have actually worked out. But I have to ask, just like in the engineering world where sometimes the most interesting stuff is where things go wrong, what's been one of those beers that you did that went wrong? Oh, boy. I would have to <laughs> say – I and it's it, – that's – that's a great question because I have what I call screaming Viking, a blonde ale that I did. <laughs> and I keep, I have probably only four of those left. And that is my reminder to always clean, sanitize, clean, sanitize, clean, sanitize. Um, <laughs> it is the most awful tasting liquid known to man. <laughs> Well, I don't so, know. Have you tried one of Drew's beers? <laughs> oh, I can't believe that. <laughs> or have you tried Dixie White Chocolate Moose back when they made it? No, no. Uh, oh, that was awful. Oh my. Yeah, this is the uh, the the coincidental you know band aid and just cardboard everything that could go wrong and a beer went wrong in that one. Oh man. So I have to ask, uh, being uh, from Pennsylvania, have you ever made a Tasty Cakes beer? No, but I, um, down over the hill from where I live, actually in our neighborhood, we have a, um, it's a favorite donut place around here called Maple Donuts. Right. And, uh, Charlie Burnsides owns those. He lives down the street here from me. And, uh, I drive by his donut shop. I've, I've driven by it every day of my life, I think. And, uh, I was going by and I'm like, you know what? I need to make a Maple Donuts porter. So I did. I went and I did, I got uh, a dozen day olds, chucked them in the mash and I uh, got another dozen day olds when it was time for the secondary and chucked them in the secondary. And, uh, that was a fun beer. That was a lot of fun. Could you taste the donuts? Absolutely. They were the glazed donuts and, uh, you could, what was best was the aroma. You know, it was, it was a glazed donut aroma. It was so good. Oh man. See, my mouth is watering now sitting here. <laughs> so, 
So, Drew, anything else we need to talk to Steve about? I think just where people can go find more of his content. <laughs> and how I can get some of the beer shipped to me. <laughs> just give me your address, brother. <laughs> so so uh, you're online quite a bit, man. Is, uh, do you have like a, a YouTube channel or something that people can go check out? Yes, so you can go to my YouTube channel. It's SJPOR, that's S-J-P-O-R-R, and you'll find me there. That's probably one of the easiest ways, or if you uh, do a search for keywords, Homebrew Wednesday, I'm sure that you will find some of my stuff and other homebrewers from across the world doing Homebrew Wednesday videos each and every week. Yeah, man, I look forward to those, actually. Those Those are a lot of fun. So the first time we talked to you, you were running a, a competition uh, that was pretty involved. Are you still doing that? I haven't ran the competition since the beginning of COVID. Um, it's been it's tough because of the um, because of the logistics side of it, you know, um, getting everybody together and all that jazz. So there's been some talk about trying it again, uh, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, man, it, it was a really, really interesting way to run a comp, and I know that people really enjoyed it. So uh, hopefully it'll work out so you can do one of those again. And we'll make sure yeah. to include that in the show notes. Yeah. There we go. So we have been talking today with Mr. Stephen J. Poor, homebrewer extraordinaire, who uh, sent me some beers to taste and uh, – Poor Drew just had to listen to me talk about them. So, Steve, thanks so much for your time, your tips, the beers. And, uh, you know, man, anytime you want to come back and talk about what you're doing, we'd love to have you on. Well, thank you guys for having me on. And uh, maybe I can get some interest back up in the SJ Poor Challenge and at least get one last hurrah out there to see what happens. <laughs> there you go, man. One, one last big one to wrap it up. Yes, indeed. Don't worry, guys. Okay. I'm supposed to retire in three days. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that how it works in the movies? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Thanks again, Steve. Have a great weekend. You as well. All right. Bye-bye. So uh, I'm sorry you didn't get to taste those beers, man, because they were they were really, really special. But so, so what are your thoughts anyway, even without tasting them? Don't worry about me. I'll be okay. <laughs> Poor Drew, poor Drew. <laughs> no, no, I mean, look, uh, SJ has been around for a good long while. Lots of YouTube content out there. Dude knows what he's doing, so I can only imagine that, that you had a great time. What, what I liked was his uh, description of the brown bag beer with a little something of everything. Well, I suspect everybody who ever hoards grain at some point in time has to have a kitchen sink, clear the pantry, whatever you want to call it, beer. So it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, you know, and I don't know if that was exactly what he was doing or if he just uh, visualized all those ingredients going into that Belgian. But, wow, I, I enjoyed it a lot, and I'm definitely going to have to try that uh, Mangrove Jack M27 yeast. There we go. So I guess it's about time to wrap things up and get out of here. Huh? Let's do this. Okay. We'll be right back with a uh, question and hopefully an answer, a quick tip, and something other. So stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. 
With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Whatever Danny wants, Danny gets. Another man who Danny wants is a beer. Welcome back, and we're going to wrap things up. And we're going to start off with a question that comes from Wes in Chattanooga. Uh, I'll read it. Drew can answer it. Wes says, I recently made my first attempt at a cream ale, and somewhat surprisingly, it overall turned out drinkable. However, it was a little meh. While not bad, but was certainly missing something. I tried to keep it simple with 75% pale malt and 25% flake corn, a little magnum for bittering and more laminate flame out. Yeast was US05, OG was 1047, and FG was 1.007. Fairly clear and was drinkable, quite refreshing, but wanted more in terms of flavor, at least per my wife. Any suggestions for how to remedy the missing something? My thoughts were replacing at least half the pale malt with a craft pale malt like Mecca or Epiphany, but since I've never made one, I really have no idea. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Basically, any malt suggestions to add more flavor to a cream ale without making it too overly complicated. Thanks so much and love the podcast, ukulele and all. See, Wes, that last part of the comment makes me question your taste. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Right. So I have some thoughts about this, but let's hear what you have to say first. Yeah, I mean, well, the the first thing is your basic recipe sounds, well, pretty rock-solidly cream ale-ish. Um, although normally these days I don't use something like USO5. I use like Diamond Lager or 3470, a very fine line between what is a cream ale and American light lager. Um, but, yeah, your description of it as being quite refreshing but wanting more in terms of flavor uh, that sounds pretty much on par with a lot of cream ale. <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to say, uh, Wes, maybe maybe the issue is you expecting a cream ale to be something that it yeah. isn't. Um, now, for how to bump up the flavor, obviously I think you're on the right track. You've got really two ingredients here because you're not going to want a lot of overt yeast character. You're not going to want a lot of overt hop character. I think the choices are using Magnum and Willamette are right in line with what I use. Uh in terms of using a, a craft uh, pale malt, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Mecca Grade will give you a lot more chew, I think. Uh, I haven't had a chance to play with the Epiphany yet, but a, a lot of these craft pale malts will be more bodaciously bodied, shall we say. Um, if you want something that gives you a little bit more repli- replication, maybe part of what you're looking for is to get a little more toasty character. You know, I've seen, I've talked to a lot of people who they want a little bit more toast than something like a cream ale. And so you could either do that with say, a little dose of Vienna. You know, and, and when I say a little dose, I mean like 10%. Uh, like a 10% uh, dosage of Vienna. Or the thing I've been playing around with, and you've listened to the podcast, you know this, is malted corn. And if you remember when Denny tasted my malted corn version of Jenny, then it, it came across with a big toasted corn note. Almost a tortilla chip in a way. Um to me, that's that's where I would go. That's, but of course, that's also been where I've been playing. 
If you can't get your hands on malted corn, then I would suggest, and I do think Epiphany actually makes a malted corn, by the way. Uh, if you can't, then try using just a little dose of Vienna just to give you something a little different. And as Denny pointed out, it may be that, you know, cream ale is just not what you're hankering for. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to summertime and it's hot, you'd be surprised. Yeah, but still, you know, I would say that if you take, I mean, if you like put malted corn in it, you're going to take it out of the realm of cream ale. I mean, how that important that is to well, you. I w- no, I mean, ser- seriously, the one you sent me, the, the malted corn just completely took it out of, of the realm of what it was supposed to be. But that's, I'm not saying it was bad. I'm not saying it was a bad beer. I'm not saying that it wasn't something you'd want to drink. I guess what I'm getting at, Wes, is that maybe you don't want to be making a cream ale at all. Maybe you want to make something else. Uh, Drew has a good point about it being a nice, refreshing summer beer. But if that's what you want, then you've got it right now, man. It sounds to me like you're looking for something else. Of course, the other idea, Wes, is you could take a a look at what everybody's doing with cold IPA and uh, cold pale ale like I'm about to do and add a bunch of hops to the back end of it. Uh, the other thing is, to Denny's point, if you wanted to reduce the impact of the malted corn, don't do 100% malted corn. I think you said 25% uh, flake corn. Like, do 10% of the malted, uh, the corn is malted corn. Right? And, and that would give you some of the toastiness without overriding everything else. Um, but again, like my, the Michigan Springtime Cold IPA or Cold Pale Ale, not an IPA, Cold Pale Ale that I'm doing is basically a cream ale with a lot of hops to the back end. Yeah, my uh, my suggestion, Wes, would be to add just a little bit of uh, maybe like a crystal tin or something like that, just to kind of like bump up the flavor and body a bit and change your finishing hops from Willamette to something with a bit more character. Uh, Willamette's going to have kind of like a like an herbal quality to it. And maybe uh, if you went with something maybe a little bit more citrusy, uh, that would still maintain the crispness of the cream ale and maybe give it a bit more character. So uh, maybe think of Centennial or Cascade or a, a combination of both for finishing. Yeah, but for the love of all of Pete's holiness, don't add vanilla. <laughs> no. Uh, so many people think... Cream ale is just like cream soda, right? So it's got to have vanilla in it. Yeah, down here in no. Southern California, I blame Mother Earth for that uh, because their, their yeah. most popular beer, their very popular beer, is called Cali Creaming, and it's a cream ale with a lot of vanilla in it. Just now everybody down here in Southern California thinks the cream ale is supposed to have vanilla in it. I keep gnashing my teeth. It's not just Southern California. It's people like me who have never heard of that brewery who uh, who run across it, too. Oh, so. I, know, I know, but it, it's just a thing. Just no vanilla. Yeah, no vanilla. Please do us a favor. And if you put vanilla in it, call it something else. <laughs> vanilla ale. All right. Okay. Now it's time for a quick tip and something other. And this time, Denny, it's all you, buddy. Uh, how about that? I got into a uh, discussion recently with a guy who had uh, made some modifications to his grandfather fermenter in order to do a closed transfer. And it just was not working out for him. And uh, I took a look at uh, at his setup there, and I went, man, this is like way, way 
too difficult. You're making this harder than it needs to be. So I showed him my solution, and even though we use grandfather fermenters, uh, this solution can be used with just about anything that has uh, an output valve on it, you know, if you have a spigot on your fermenter or something like that. And it's it's really very simple. It's, it's a way of uh, attaching a quick disconnect to a piece of tubing so that you can attach the quick disconnect to your uh, keg and the other end to your uh, to your fermenter. Basically, I found a little piece of tubing that fit inside the tubing that connects to the fermenter. I put a, a flare fitting on that, the, the female end of a flare fitting, and I insert that into the transfer tube for the fermenter, put a, a hose clamp around it to hold it in there, screw the quick disconnect onto the end, the plain end of the tube goes to my fermenter, quick disconnect goes to my keg, and boom, there it is. Closed transfer, really easy. Takes about a buck worth of parts, uh, and it's been flawless for me. And uh, I, I've got a picture of the setup that we'll uh, put on the website so you can see what I'm talking about, because it can be a little hard to describe. Yeah, I mean, basically what you're doing is you're using a smaller tube, that has its OD matches the inner diameter of the transfer tube out of the fermenter. And you're kind of making a reduction gasket in a way. And then in the back end of that, adding the flare fitting so you can add your, your keg coupler. So right, it it does sound like kind of thing. I mean, I assume you take that apart when whenever it's not being used, right? Yeah, yo, yeah, I, I do. I, I take it apart. I mean, you know, I, I clean each piece separately. I sanitize each piece separately. Then I put it together. And I've been using this for quite a while and have not encountered any issues with it whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, because that's the sort of thing where there's a little too much microbial hiding ground to keep it together and use it as a sanitary transfer. The whole like without any sort of real care to it. But for a, you know, backwoods Rube Goldberg sort of solution that's cheap, it sure as hell works. Yeah, it does, man. It, you know, it gets me back to my cheap and easy roots. There you go. Never <laughs> let it be said that Denny is just an expensive sort of guy. <laughs> yeah, man, you know, I, I got that way, but uh, I still prefer cheap and easy when it works. And now for something other. And I get to do this one. I almost never get to do it. I uh, I discovered something interesting today. It may be apocryphal. It may not be. Kind of like a lot of homebrewing info. But the seventh inning stretch was created in 1910 when President William Howard Taft, who you may recall was a very, very large guy, uh, was at a baseball game and stood up to stretch during the seventh inning. The whole crowd thought that he was about to leave, and out of respect for the office, they all stood up too. So... You know, even though the term can't be traced any farther back than 1920, apparently in 1910, Taft did it because his big fat butt was tired and he had to stand up. So uh, that that is supposedly the origin of the seventh inning stretch. Well, see, when you talked about that, I think you said you heard about that on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so if you do a Google search for it, the very first thing that pops up is the United States Post Office for some reason. Um, and they have a, a bulletin on there about it. And they actually say that the, the earliest reference surfaced in an 1869 letter from a person on the Cincinnati Red Stockings to a friend. The spectators all arise between the halves of the seventh inning, extend their legs and arms, and sometimes walk about. In so doing, they enjoy the relief afforded by relaxation from long posture on hard benches. 
So this is one 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 of those other things where uh, stories are good, stories are fun. Uh, sometimes if a story is too good, it might not be good history. But who knows? It's still fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it, it might be. If you guys have any other idea, uh, please let us know. Uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You just never know. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. But uh, but this is a good reminder. Baseball's back, and that which means I'm spending a lot of time working with baseball games on in the background. <laughs> or not working with baseball games on in the background. Yes, indeed. And also, by the way, the pitch clock rules. You know what? I have heard many, many people talking about how great that is. I agree. So uh, it's good, good to know. <laughs> okay. From beer to baseball and back again. Thanks for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, our new improved website, at experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. You can find me over on the AHA Discussion Forum, Facebook, and any number of other places. If you want to get in touch with us to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can send us a text or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL, 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 